This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? dramatic or like sort of understated or what this is a land that prays for a hero the humor of the entire situation suddenly gave way to a run for survival you are listening to greening the apocalypse on triple r102.7 fm Welcome, one and all, to this week's edition of Greening the Apocalypse, as weekly all sorts of stuff uh, program from 7 till 8 of a Tuesday evening. Uh, Bushy is my name and I am here this evening with the marvellous Kate Dundas. Hello, Katie. Hello, Bushy. How you be? Uh, yes, better this week. Um, I'm not one to often quote Winston Churchill, but I was looking at some of his quotes up the other day and he said, if you're ever going through hell, keep going. Good advice there. Yes, indeed. Thanks. He also said that history would be kind to him because he intended to write it. So well, it's that's good, true. Good to be the king. Mm. Uh, switches, buttons and sliding mechanisms all belong in the proud hands of one Jed McCartney. How are you, Jed? I'm good, thanks, Bushy. Hello, Kate. Hello, Bushy. No, <laughs> Jed. Jed. <laughs> Looking at no, Bushy. Get, a, get up to where you're up in the script. Get a roll down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not too far ahead. The surprise is coming. Uh, this evening's guest... Katie, how do you feel about an intro? Are you ready to roll on one? I'm very excited about this evening's guest. Let's do it! It's, we found it's Claire Dunn, and we found Claire through a book that she wrote called My Year Without Matches, which the book it was actually given to me by Glenda Lindsay, which makes it extra special, because Glenda was just the best woman ever, and she was just fabulous. So... It makes it a really special thing for me to have received that book from Glenda and I just loved reading the book so much that I appropriated some of Claire's memories as my own and then <laughs> spoke about them on the show. Like that time you spent a year without matches. Yeah, I remember that time I was in the bush for a year. Yeah. Oh, that wasn't me. It was a book I read. Mm. So Claire is a former environmental campaigner uh, with, with the Wilderness Society and now works as a freelance journalist and is studying postgraduate psychology. Is that correct? No, incorrect. Incorrect. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you give us an intro, Claire? Tell us about yourself. Tell us your story because we got that from you. Yeah. No, the back of the book lies. <laughs> um, I'm studying transpersonal counselling and run a business in Nature Connection called Nature's Apprentice. The psychology was an experiment gone wrong. <laughs> experiment in fake news or... Yeah, something like that. Oh, good day. Well, welcome to the studio this evening, Claire. We're absolutely delighted to have you. Thank and you. Good to our, be here. Yeah, good. And we're very much looking forward to hearing about your year in the wild and what happened before and what happened after mm -hmm. so let's go back a bit and start at the beginning tell us a bit about what you were doing before you made that really big decision to go and spend an entire year without matches what was that light bulb moment for you when you began to value the natural world beyond the horizon from home and actively seek to save it. Tell mm. us a bit about your life before. Life before, okay. Well, there certainly is, uh, uh, you know, before and after kind of um, 
dichotomy going on. It, it really was such a transformational year that I do think of it in those terms. But before was, um, yeah, I was working as an environmental campaigner for the better part of a decade or through my uh, most of my 20s. And I'd grown up on a farm, so developed a, you know, really uh, passionate love for the natural world and roamed roamed pretty free with my siblings on the riverbank. And so the move into environmental activism was just quite quite a natural progression when I uh, left the small town and, and hit the city and, and discovered the, the world of, of activism. And so I, I just poured myself into that, um, both through grassroots organisations and on-ground work as well as... Um, yeah, working as a as a campaigner for the Wilderness Society. And what happened was I started to, well, you know, classically burn out um, from just, you know, lofty goals and not enough resources, the, the usual um, the usual scenario, but also started to see that the the barrier to our success was the fact that there was a profound disconnection to nature and that that is the the root that's what i saw as the root cause of the ecological crisis is is this you know and we don't we we're only moved by what we what we feel for what we love or what we hate but if we don't have a a love for an area or even for the natural world then there's nothing to really move us to act so i could say anything the statistics were you know everyone knows what's going on but um there wasn't a a kind of a natural movement from that to to act so and i and i started to feel that in myself too i was computer campaigning and and um started to lose that initial inspiration and that connection and at the same time um i started I turned up to a, my first course in what was called nature philosophy and it was a combination of kind of bushcraft, wilderness survival skills and nature awareness and shamanic kind of practices and um, something in me just woke up. You know when you find something and it's just the, the thing and I, I, I just fell in love with, um, with those skills and more so with the, the way it was the way it made me feel like a a kind of true aliveness like I was really waking up my um, my body and it felt just so right like a birthright almost to to know how to survive um, how to thrive without all the trappings of society how to how to kind of sink into a place in a way that gave a sense of belonging and a sense of a sense of homecoming um, so, and that's what I experienced through through studying these these early courses, um, and then when the idea of the year was posed, I um, I just knew I was going to be there. Mm. It was just not even, you know, people say it was such a you know big decision, and how did you just? Well, it wasn't. It was just like, oh yeah, that's it. I'm going. I imagine there's lots of people listening to this show at the moment who are in that position that you were in, sitting behind a desk, feeling mm. like the work that you were doing wasn't making that much of a difference mm. it wasn't how as much we we hear a lot from activists on this show and there seems to be a point in which you go a couple of different ways you turn to permaculture because you mm-hmm. need to go to restoring rather than yes. fighting against mm. or you just give up yeah it's right. it's a hard thing 
yep. to continue to do, to continue to fight the fight without making, without seeing things becoming better, without seeing change. Yeah, it's a hard slog, and I take my hat off to people who are still doing it. Mm. Um, it's such such necessary work, but I, you know, I also feel like the the work of of reconnection is so vital, mm-hmm. and it's um, certainly not. Um, not nearly as mainstream as environmental activism. Um, and it's kind of a movement that's becoming known as rewilding, like this this movement back to um, an intimate connection with, with the natural world and with our, uh, our kind of like our genetic um, kind of predisposition to be in intimate connection with nature, with our food, our, our water, our, our life support systems. And some... Um, commentators are saying that rewilding is the next big human movement it's like yes there's environmentalism fantastic but Mm. without the rewilding there's not that kind of like fertile ground that compost for the the seeds to grow for that that real fundamental shift in values to happen yeah Mm. i think and and there's probably a very small separation between um, environmental campaigning and human rights campaigning and and, um, much like you're saying the hard slog of Mm. campaigning for the environment people who commit their life to human rights or you know, mm-hmm. Medicine Sans Frontiers, for example, or people who uh, join with Amnesty International to go abroad probably truly come to understand the, uh, the importance of their work once they go literally to that coal face. Mm-hmm. And, and it's interesting to hear you say that, I mean, environmentalism is, is almost, uh, almost a dirty word. I mean, it's so mainstream now, sort of right. almost bouncing back on itself yes. because you can sit at a little laptop like this and be actively... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a petition here or informed about this and this and that, but until you get the blistered hands and the cracked knuckles right. and that frontline stuff, it probably doesn't really drive. Did you, do you feel now, um, having spent a year in the wilderness and going through mm-hmm. that process mm-hmm. of rewilding and you're now teaching people more about that, do you feel that your work now has a greater significance than your previous activism work? Because you are still effectively... An activist. Yes. Yeah, and I really like thinking of activism in in a much more holistic context. Like Joanna Macy, who's been one of my teachers, which is where I met Glenda actually, studying with Joanna Macy, talks about activism in three areas, like the holding actions, which is what we traditionally think of as activism, Mm -hmm. uh, which I was engaged in, and then there's the alternative structures, so creating all the new, like permaculture and renewable energies and so forth. And then there's, uh, like, the foundation of those two is the shift of values, like really shifting... The, the foundational um, piece upon which we live, like how, what do we really value and where are we going to put our time and energy? Yeah. And that's where I see my work now. It's the reconnection, reconnecting mm. to the natural world, reconnecting to each other, kind of thinking um, not so much in sustainability but cultural renewal, yeah. like really thinking about regenerative design, something that's much more about thriving and coming back to our you know, original instructions, if you like, rather than just kind of keeping on what we're doing in a bit of a more sustainable way. Oh, don't we need it so badly? Oh, my goodness, so Mm. badly. It's almost, I suppose, you're building an ecological literacy. I mean, you you get to a point in life if you've learnt to read with the written word, which uh, is a vital thing that there's so much importance is put on that. But you get to a point where you don't actually think about reading. Your words, you see them everywhere and you read them. And I guess that's a thing that we no longer have ingrained in us is an ecological literacy. People don't see a tree as part of everything around it, they see a tree. Yes. And so I guess this is, yeah, arguably the next environmental revolution. Triple R is where you are, and Greening the Apocalypse is the program at a little after seven. 
Uh, we have Claire Dunn in the studio, and uh, she is the author of a book, My Year Without Matches. Um, I should let listeners know that if you're looking to read the book or you're currently reading the book, you think there's the slightest chance of a spoiler coming up, you probably want to flick off for the next 15 to 20 minutes while we chat to Claire about the book. I'll give you two seconds to do that. Game on. Okay, now, the book... Uh, is effectively a journal in some ways, but it goes a lot deeper than that. It's a year that you spent on um, an area, a place called The Block. Um, Without Matches is a reference to the fact that you uh, relied quite a fair bit on, on fire, but not once did you strike a match or a bick in order to do that. Before we get too deeply into it, let's establish the actual aims and perhaps some of the limitations of your year on The Block. So it, w- it wasn't a desert island um, experience where nobody could reach you and every last thing was down to what you had there. There was a few things you were permitted to do. There's opportunities to leave or call in friends. Can you run us through sort of the, the sure. ground rules of The Block? Well, it was a bit of a choose-your-own-adventure, so we, we kind of made them up as we went along. But uh, it was very loosely facilitated. There were six of us who signed up, mm-hmm. six of us who started, not everyone finished. Um, and it was um, not Survivor. I mean, the land couldn't support us to, to, to live there and only, only um, so, you know, catch food from the land. So we had bulk dry foods. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe went to town once a month to get supplies. Uh, so it wasn't a total cutoff. Mm. But, uh, and really everyone chose the level to which they wanted to dive in terms of the immersion. Um, but the structure was, was basically the first six months of the year, was, it was build your own shelter. There was a, 100 acres of land mm-hmm. that we had and then um, backing onto that was vast areas of national park and so forth. So there was a lot of area to roam. Mm-hmm. Um, build your own shelter within the first few months just using materials found on the land. And then a variety of instructors would come in um, and teach us everything from, you know, fire making to um, hide tanning and st- string and rope making, basket making, mm-hmm. primitive pottery, tracking, bird language, etc. Um, so then the, th- the second half of the year was structureless um, and really was a, a case of do what you want to do, see people if you want to see people or just hide away in your humpy if that's what you mm-hmm. want to do. Yep. So there wasn't much structure apart from that. Um, I made the decision to only light fires by you know rubbing sticks together, yep. um, partly going on that, um, you know, the greater the need, the greater the result. Yeah, kind of uh, concept, which the greater, works. The greater the blister, too. Yeah, yeah the greater some the fantastic, blister. Fantastic. There's a great photo. You got to hand like a seven year old bricklayer <laughs> at one point. Yeah, they were a bit gnarly, um, but it, it it worked. You know, I had to if I wanted to to have a fire at night and cook any food, I just had to get good at that skill. Mm. Um, so yeah, there was there was little structure which which suited me because I I wanted. By the, by, the, by the time I went into that experience, I wanted very little structure and I wanted quite minimal social interaction. Yep. Um, yeah, but it was, it was very much, um, you know, here are the skills and it's your 
opportunity to to go as deeply as you want into it it's it's up to you to apply yourself there's not going to be any kind of one checking you know no exams at the end of the year yeah cool mm. uh i picked up the book i got into it and at uh around about page eight you quote a section where your your father describes the site as green ant country <laughs> uh referring to uh, as you put it his derision of any land not fit for running cattle or human usefulness uh now that's a, a fairly uh eurocentric view of the australian landscape sure how much did you find yourself initially i mean you said you grew up on a farm you Mm -hmm. played in the river and all those Mm -hmm. sorts of things but how much did you find yourself viewing the land you were on through that lens when you arrived it more than you thought or less well it wasn't the kind of land i pictured myself spending a year on Mm. i was i was picturing old growth forest maybe a bit rainforesty you know big blue gums running clear creek that we could drink from Mm -hmm. But the land that they bought for this experience was was cheap. It, it, you know, they needed to buy cheap land, and so cheap land was basically it had been logged and it had been there was an old quarry site. Yeah, and uh, and it was hot as hell in summer and in winter because sandstone kind of country, so kind of open woodlandy. It was it was really cold. So it was this one kind of anomaly on the north coast of New South Wales that that was like the the western arm of sandstone extending right down to the coast. So it wasn't land I was familiar with. Um, and at first it was like, okay, this is it then. All right, the scribbly gums and me. Um, but, of course, I grew to absolutely love it. And it is a very diverse um, area with endangered um, paperbark swamps and mm-hmm. uh, wildflowers everywhere and the banksias were just incredible. And, and it did just open up. Like the more I took notice the more i um relied on the on the land for all my my resources the more i came to appreciate it of course Mm. yeah so you must have thought a lot about this year before you went and you must have painted a picture in your mind of what the landscape was going to look like and what your experience was going to be like the people that you're going to be there with um, how did that play out? How did you, the relationships? You you write a lot about the relationships with the. I think it was six of you all together. Yes. So can you just tell us a bit about what you thought it would be like and what it was right. like and some of the difficulties that you had? Sure. Well, if you'd asked me at the start of the year, I would have said, "Oh no, no expectations. I'm just open to whatever you know presents itself." But in hindsight, I had you know a range of expectations that were from both disaster scenarios to absolute, you know, fantasy kind of land. Um, <laughs> and neither neither was quite true. But, yes, the, the relationships with the others was certainly a challenge and a, and a story in itself. And I kind of feel like I there was three relationships going on that year. There was me in the bush, me and myself, and me and the others. And I was really up for the first two, but the relationship with the others... I kind of wasn't really wanting to go there. You know, this was my year to turn my attention to the non-human world. I'd done the human world for 20-odd years and I just wanted to do the non-human world. So it was a bit of a necessary evil in a way. I kind of knew I couldn't do the year by myself. I'd tried going bush by myself for a month and realised that a year was not going to be healthy for me. So... um and there, some of them were friends and some I didn't know. There was three three guys and three of us girls. And, um, yeah, it was certainly that forming, storming, norming um, proje- uh, trajectory that the group went on. But uh, it was really challenging because I just assumed that everyone wanted the same kind of 
depth of experience that I did and was turning up with the same kind of passion and readiness and just like, let's hit the ground running, let's just run with the wolves. And no, that wasn't the case. You know, there was a guy that was had just kind of detoxing from a... Um, a life in Sydney of partying and he was just rolling up having not spent that much time in the bush and another guy who instead of joining the army thought he'd come and do this a couple of girlfriends came along and um, a guy I'd met in America studying so anyway it was it suffice to say uh, it, it got a bit messy there there was one <coughs> one couple that that formed and another kind of uh, alliance so there was all these kind of little alliances because actually we really needed each other too we I realised I couldn't build a shelter by myself. That's really hard to thatch and build a shelter. Um, so these kind of alliances formed in order to kind of help each other and um, and then, you know, who's who's having dinner at who's humpy and <laughs> all that kind of stuff for the first few months um, in particular. And I found myself being incredibly judgmental more so than I knew, mm-hmm. uh, more so than I'd like to think of myself as. And uh, it wasn't really until the, the shelters were up and up and built and I could really move into my own zone that I, <coughs> I, I started to, to, to leave that, that human world behind and, and go into my own hut. Mm. I was really struck. Um, I mean, anyone can get hold of this book, including the five other participants. So <laughs> I was quite struck by how honest this was. And you could feel the tension rising between everyone in yes. this book but i have to say like it, as the book sort of kicks in it does seem like you have this really like this steadfast almost hitting a brick wall determination to push things in a certain direction mm. and there's this beautiful part that i wanted to talk to you about where it unravels but you've you, as you're permitted to do you've got mum and dad in to help you build a, a, a shelter which actually ends up being this beautiful thatched dome shelter and you're attempting to slow things down you're creating this strictly adhered to ritual and you're sprinkling herbs into the holes and uh, it sort of serves in the end to create this quite negative energy and tension and you're suddenly realising that you're, I think you say you're acting like a spoiled teenager and, and you relinquish that control and you sort of let go of it all and the result is really quite happy and your father goes from, you know, getting it wrong in your eyes to sort of saying to you, hey, don't forget to sprinkle the hole with yeah, yeah. herbs there and stuff like that. Was this sort of the turning point for you where you could, you had to realise that this was going to be about go with the flow or just go? Pretty much. Yeah, yeah. There, there, there really was a sense of um, as the heat rose in summer, also the tension was rising both within the group but within myself as I realised that the, the expectations that I had for the year um, were creating the same kind of key performance indicators that I just <laughs> left. <laughs> and Who that, doesn't love a KP? That's right. And uh, I, the, the, the real skill, the real opportunity I had was about letting go of what I thought I should do or what I even I wanted to achieve and learn to yeah as you say go with the flow to to follow kind of impulse to just follow the um follow the wandering path rather than the okay I'm going to do tracking in the morning and then I'm going to do a basket in the afternoon and and by you know the first of March I want to have my shelter built and Just yeah. let all that go. Because there's know. no calendar. There's any. no calendar. Yeah. That's right. And and I was creating calendars and lists in my in my mind. And it kind of was the in a way that my own kind of detox. Yeah. You know, because it, it it was a sharp distinction between the world I'd left, which was um, busy and and achievement focused, 
um, and this other world that was actually inviting me into a much slower rhythm with the earth. Mm. And it took a while to actually sink into that earth time. Indeed. Have you um, brought that back with you? Somewhat. Somewhat. Um, it's a good question. Um, yes. I, you know, even this morning I walked down to my, what I call my sit spot and I found myself, this was at six o'clock in the morning, it was raining and I was still out there with my raincoat on and I was, I was walking down the hill to my sit spot and I found myself like stomping and kind of, right, get to my sit spot so I can like sit there and then I can get back up and start <laughs> and work. And be free of time. And, and then I was like, hang on a second, mm. slow down. And I, just literally that, that slowing down to earth rhythm, like the a kind of quarter of the speed basically, then my mind slowed down. I was actually noticing that, you know, what was what was happening and the, the few birds that were waking up. So it's it's in me. I, I recognise that that earth time, and I'm and I and it's kind of more painful when I step out of it. But it's a work in progress, Jed. <laughs> Indeed, it would yeah. be. Um, we well, we were just talking about you know that the change to your your mind in terms of time and stuff like that. It'd be ridiculous to not talk to you about the changes that occurred you know physically mm. emotionally psychologically i mean there is some quite long stretch moments in the book where you're seeking you refer often to uh seeking the wild woman mm. and awakening the wild woman mm. maybe if you could sort of talk to us how did you feel physically did mm. that sort of is that something that changed and, and remained with you afterwards mm. um and the emotional and psychological because there's there was some quite elongated moments there where you're on your own mm. um Yes, yes. Well, there certainly were changes on many levels and um, I guess I went into the year knowing that I wanted a transformational experience but then having no idea what that, what that would actually mean. And, of course, many of us wouldn't enter into those experiences if we knew what it was actually going to <laughs> mean in terms of the process. Um, what happens I have come to understand is when you put yourself in an environment like the forest, which is um, completely in its own flow, then all the stuck parts of you seek to kind of meet that flow or seek to kind of be in that flow. And that's, it, it sounded like a, a nice metaphor, but then actually I realised that was what was happening. The more I just sat and listened and wandered and journaled and um, opened myself both physically like I was really concentrating on opening up all my senses so I was doing like a this kind of dynamic meditation of walking slower opening up my you know wide angle vision um, what could I hear what could I uh, what was the softest sound what was the closest sound what could I smell what could I feel so really opening up the physical senses but I also found that that opened up that kind of uh, intuitive sense and also started to open up the emotional body. So um, I I started to, you know, kind of have all sorts of memories and um, a much a greater spectrum of emotion. So both deep grief and kind of ecstatic experiences. And it did take me on, on quite a, uh, on a dive in winter when I was spending all my time alone and I was, I was um, going a little bit feral. Nice. Um, the, the blisters and the, you know, not, not bathing and um, just really just wandering around, lighting fires and um, 
sitting and watching and being out at night, doing a lot of night walking, um, losing any kind of sense of rhythm. And in that kind of liminal winter, those few months, I really did drop into a, um, you know, a, a, a kind of a, 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 it was a healing, like a, a lot of a lot of old unresolved issues, I guess, from the past coming up. And uh, it certainly wasn't pleasant and it was certainly not something I was in control of. And that's when it became really interesting when I realised that my emotional world was was really doing its own thing mm. and it, it was healing, but I was not in control of it. All I had, all my role was just to let it unfold. And I was reading Women Who Run With The Wolves by Clarissa oh, Pinkola. It's Estes. a great book. Oh, such a great book. It's still, you know, one of the Bibles. And uh, it just took me even deeper into that archetypal wild woman and wild wild meaning really at the core coming from internal authority rather than external authority so that really was my practice like what do i feel like doing what does this organism need right now what does it feel like doing is it lying by the fire is it running is it climbing a tree is it journaling is it what is it what what is the internal authority of this wild creature? Mm. So really reconnecting with that instinctual um, primal self. Oh, <laughs> I, just listening to you talk about getting into the rhythm of the forest and the flow of the forest. Mm. Most of us don't live in the forest and won't have that opportunity to ever experience that in a long, over a long spell of time. Mm-hmm. I'd be really interested on your thoughts about how to gain that sense of rewilding within an urban environment when it's so dynamic and complex and multi-rhythmic and mm. concrete. Yes. Well, it's a good question and it's it's an inquiry that I'm that I'm exploring at the moment. I'm I'm working on another book while actually playing with another book because I'm not doing much writing. I'm doing a lot of experimenting with this whole idea of rewilding in an urban context and uh, rewilding in the broader sense of the of the word. So yes, all the nature connection skills and and I have this my sit spot where I go most days and and observe the changes of the seasons and the cycles and the animals and the plants in this one spot. Is and that spot in your garden or is it's, it? It's, it's in my back garden in yeah. Fairfield. Mm. Um, so, you know, that, that there's, especially in Melbourne, the access to, to wild areas or wildish and, and wild could mean, you know, a patch in your backyard that, um, that has a few plants and you can watch the sky and that there's a sense of not being in the human landscape, like being, um, primarily surrounded by, by any type of, you know, um, natural, natural place. So that's part of the study. Also incorporating some of the skills of, of, you know, wilderness living. So still doing my fire practice and, and having, you know, having a fire, even that. And we're allowed, everyone's allowed to have a, a backyard fire if you're cooking something. So just have a potato next to it or something and you get away yeah. with it. Um, <laughs> but also like coming back to that sense of can we awaken our instinctive self? Because in many ways we've become over-domesticated and, and kind of, conditioned to being little robots in the city checking our phones and mm. um and just breaking some of those habits so instead of just habitually reaching for the phone on the on the train station platform or whatever just spending that 5 minutes opening up the senses there's so much to notice mm. and to awaken to 
if we take the time and it does need to be a practice like anything else Mm. um waking up the body like how can we use our physical bodies in ways that they would have um, been in evolutionary terms so using our spine in different ways getting on the floor and rolling around or crawling or just being physically strong is is a is a kind of a part of that so um and and you know edible weeds and um seeing what resources are in the landscape like i'm weaving baskets that i've that i've you know using the materials from the mary creek and that kind of thing so just being really aware of the plethora of wildness around us and within us you know the wildness within and the wildness outside and and how we can kind of cultivate that sense of um an instinctive wild self in the city I don't really know the answer yet. Um, it's certainly a very different I feel experience. Like you just told me the answer. Well, it does sound that's like a my very ideas, good working anyway. progress. It's a working progress. And Triple R is where you are, and Green in the Apocalypse is the show you're tuned to with Bushy, Kate, and Jed. And we are chatting with Claire Dunch, who's the author of My Year Without Matches. And we've chatted her this evening about her life before the big year without matches and her her time during up on the block in, was it northern New South Wales? Yes, about three hours south of Byron. Nice, yeah. nice. Um, so it seems that, I don't know, I used to. I used to had this really weird job a lifetime ago um, in a in a warehouse um, working for one of the big supermarkets, and there was a fellow there who, um, when I first started to inquire about things like permaculture and survivalism and all sorts of stuff, I was in, I was pointed out to this guy and vice versa, and I went to his house a few times here and there. It was sort of he's an interesting fellow, but he he was sort of relying on a lot of I would say that sort of more biblical uh, book of revelations type stuff and. Ed, Casey's future maps of the world and all sorts of stuff in in his uh, what he called his preparations for changing time or whatever um, but he was quite routinely mocked um, mm. and I was quite routinely mocked for hanging out with him but anyway he's a fair bit older than me um, but nonetheless an interesting guy it seems in the last few years with um, things like the golden merkin in the White House now uh, saber rattling up north it seems as though the words like survivalism or prepping um, are gaining a bit more momentum and sure. they're a bit more whether they're getting mainstream acceptance or not they're certainly being spoken about we reviewed an article in the new york a little while ago about the silicon valley preppers mm-hmm. you know armed with millions if not billions of dollars for whatever right. perceived preparations they want to build do you see yourself to some degree fitting in with that's never this broad yeah. spectrum of groups i mean it is a very broad spectrum if we're talking about the rewilding movement then mm-hmm. i guess preppers are, are part of that um up one end of the spectrum but i there was never really my um my conscious motivation was to get ready for any kind of apocalypse mm. i do feel like it's important for me to to have a sense of independence or potential independence that i could actually go off and and survive on the land if mm. i needed to but that's it's yeah it's never really been my my motivation it's been more about um a kind of a lifestyle that that feels right a lifestyle that wakes me up and and connects me in a way that makes me happier the motivations are more of an internal voice rather than things from the external world well yeah initially for sure and and now it just feels like um uh it's it's part of um the the contributing to the movement of of reconnection Mm. So, but it just happens to be lots of fun and I love doing it. So that's a great combination. But um, prepping, prepping, not so much, but, you know, I I 
studied uh, quite a bit in the States before I did this year at a place called Tracker School in yep. America, which, you know, has it's has 100 people in, in every class and you get everything from the US Marines to kind of um, evangelistic preppers to kind of prairie kids. Yep. Um, and it was a fascinating mix of... Um, of uh, people coming together for these skills and realizing the the uh, the all the the movement in America is so much bigger than here. I mean, it's it's just huge, um, and it's really gaining momentum. But more so from a village building perspective now, rather than the kind of prepper um, aspect. It's more like, hey, we actually the, the core. Um, the core need here is to rebuild village life, yep. to reconstruct village life. Mm. That's um, both the literal village but the metaphoric village as well. It's about connectedness. Right. So not so much about intentional communities like going off and, and, and forming these I- idealistic communities on the land but can be part of it. But it's more so like living in the cities, how can we reconstruct village life? How can we create the connective tissue between us um, and between us and nature that um, can reinvigorate this sense of connectedness, this sense of being resilient and um, thriving and, you know, we're not in these isolated nuclear families or, or just having friends our own age, but we have a village structure. You know, we, mm. have, we have elders and, and kids and, and we go out and have potlucks and, and um, forage and send the kids off to have, have their unstructured playtime mm. in nature, which we all know is more as important as vitamin C. And... Um, and we're, we're consciously recreating village life and the skills of um, of living intimately and, and connected to the land. And did you say that the people in your tracker school were attempting to do that? Oh, look, there was there was a range of people attempting to do all sorts of different things. But one of the teachers I'm currently studying with um, is a master tracker and bird language expert and uh, anthropologist. And it's it's his whole message is that nature connection is in the context of a village building or cultural renewal. It's not just nature connection for nature connection's sake. It's because we have to put back the connective tissue into our society if we're going to be resourced enough and resilient enough to really create new ways of living. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I would love to explore how to do that in a high-dense environment. Yeah, absolutely. So how does it work in the CBD when every time you build a new tower, you're essentially building a little village, yes. a vertical village? Yes. So important for the future absolutely. health and happiness of our of our whole community. Indeed. Yes. I, was, um, I was just thinking, you touched on then about um, the children and in their role in a village mm-hmm. structure. And with Nature's Apprentice, do you, is there school groups and, and kids that you work with? Or Yeah, I work with adults and, um, and kids um, and collaborate with, with other um, people who are doing similar things. But one of the, the, most, important, um, the most important things is, is giving kids that unstructured playtime in nature. Mm. Um, and also creating, uh, again, the kind of rites of passage that we've lost. So yeah. at every stage of human development, throughout the whole human cycle, we need to recreate um, those rites of passage so that we can make those transitions smoothly and come into true adulthood because essentially we're living in an adolescent society yeah. with maybe 5% you know, actually reaching adulthood in a true sense of maturation, like stepping into that, you know, role of service and and um, looking, caring and tending for the greater whole. Mm. Um, so some of the, you know, I'm, I'm part of a group uh, that's running Rites of Passage program for 11 to 14 year old girls. So we'll meet over nine months and then they'll go out and do their own overnight solo 
um, at the end. And then we we run um, like Vision Quest, which is a solo fast out in out in the bush, which is you know a, a traditional um, kind of rite of passage or transitional marker point mm. that that is very powerful for 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 change because it it opens one to deep connection to nature and to um, to themselves. So in all sorts of ways, I'm experimenting with bringing back um, this these rites of passage and these these kind of ways of of experiencing deep connection. That is awesome. Yes, Triple R is where you are. Greening the Apocalypse is the show. We're just wrapping up for the evening. Uh, Claire Dunn, wonderful to have you in the studio. Uh, what's coming up that you're doing? Uh, well, I've got a few workshops coming up and um, I'd love to hear from anyone who's interested in, in this kind of work, nature reconnection and rewilding. So um, drop me a line and the website is um, www.naturesapprentice.com.au. Awesome. Uh, what sort? What sort of a, a workshop look like? I know that recently a friend of a common friend of ours, uh, Taj Sakluna, uh-huh. the Permapixie, as yes. she's often called. You guys were running some workshops yeah, a year we, or so back. We're going to start it again. I'm going to go and visit her next week to chat about it. But Sacred Ecology was yep. a, a series of five weekends that went through uh, every season of the of the year, and we did all sorts of fun stuff: well, permaculture and bush skills and awareness and ceremony. And nice. So um, it's not up on the website, but if you're interested, drop me a line, and we'll let you know. No, it's clairedone.com.au or dot. Uh, Nature's Apprentice. Nature's Apprentice. Sorry. .com.au. I think you had another one called Claire, didn't you? Okay. Yeah, that's that wrong back of the book again. <laughs> yeah, I've got to have words back with your editors lies. and publishers, I think. <laughs> Bushy's my name. We will see you next Tuesday, but until then, have all the fun. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.